welcome friends and family to the Same 7 Podcast. My name is Corey Moore and I'm excited to have you here. Happy 2020. It is a new year and this is a um, same old same 7 Podcast. So sorry about that, but we are happy that it is a new year and my co-host is not present tonight, unfortunately. Andy is absent, so we'll have to put a, a bad check mark on on his record there. He will not be receiving perfect attendance this year. However, I have um, Keith Giles, who has actually been on the same seven podcast before, got a lot of great feedback from um, the episode that he was on. So excited to have him back. Keith is the co-host of the Heretic Happy Hour, which is a podcast that if you aren't listening to, you definitely want to check that out. He's also the author of several books, including two that were released in 2019, which is Jesus Undefeated and Jesus Unveiled. And so, Keith, very excited to have you back on to talk about um, some really interesting topics. So thank you for joining us again. Yeah, Corey, thank you so much. Uh, it's an honor to be back and um, I'm excited to talk about our topic because I think there's some the things you when you invited me, I thought I agreed. Uh, there's some important things I felt like we should you know discuss. So let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's jump right into it. So you know, the topic for tonight is um, surrounding Christians, guns, violence, um, and and this has really been sparked in um, mainstream media and in religion due to the church shooting that was in Texas um, at, towards the end of the year. And um, what so kind of the story was a, a man dressed in disguise. He's he's in the church and he has a he has a gun and he he raises up and he shoots a couple of folks and. Um, then several people on the church's security team, they, they draw down on this guy. They, they take him out. They, they kill him. And so total, there were three deaths. And so, um, the, the guy who actually killed him was, was praised as a hero, um, among evangelical circles and, and even in the media. And so, um, you know, that, that really sparked a lot of conversation. And Keith, I know for, for you, um, specifically on your Facebook and Twitter, you have started some firestorms, my friend. I mean, um, you'll, you've posted some, some pretty, you know, basic comments and, and getting a, a lot of, of feedback on that. So I guess let's, let's just kind of go straight into what your beliefs are on violence in, in general. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I guess I want to start by saying, Corey, um, I mean, I think it's horrible. You know, it's depressing and sad that this happened and, and gun violence in America, whether it's churches or schools or, you know, synagogues or mosques or shopping malls or university campuses or whatever. I mean, it, it is a problem. It's an ongoing thing. And, and I think I, so anything we say from this point on, I want to make sure I'm very clear um, with you and, and, and the listeners to the podcast, I don't approach this from a political standpoint. So, and I need to say that because sometimes when I make comments about my beliefs and my concerns about when it comes to violence, specifically just violence in, in general, um, but specifically Christians and violence and, and how guns and things like that play into it. Um, I'm approaching it from a Jesus follower perspective. Okay. Now, but the reason I have to say that, I have to explain that I'm not approaching it from a political perspective, is that so many Christians are so, um, I think in America, especially Christians are so tribalistic and they're, and they're um, 
some of, and I, and I say this, one of my books I wrote, Jesus Untangled was about this, my own journey through this, you know, there's, they were more American than Christian. I certainly growing up was more American than Christian. And I had to go through the process of just allowing the Holy Spirit to point this out to me. Um, and that I needed to, I needed to have a clear line between politics and faith. And for me, um, I, I eventually ended up at a place where, um, I am I'm completely patriotic to my nation, but that is the kingdom of God. And I completely support my leader, and that's Jesus. He's the king. And I am not only a, a supporter of my nation and my ruler, um, I'm actually a member of the cabinet. Um, I'm an ambassador that was assigned on day one to stand for him, stand for his message, his platform, his kingdom, his politics. Um, and that stands quite often in opposition to the United States of America and to China and to Russia and Korea and many other uh, empires on the planet Earth. And so, unfortunately, though, if I'm if, when I make statements about nonviolence and those kinds of things, and I'm talking about, and as far as I can see, following what Jesus commanded, it get, it gets filtered through quite often. Christians go, "Oh, you're a liberal." No, I would be liberal if I was arguing this from, uh, you know, some kind of liberal, democratic, anti-gun, you know, platform. But I'm not. I encourage you actually not to vote. I encourage you not to vote for Democrat or Republican and not to participate in those political uh, organizations at all. So I just want to say that I, I'm not anything I say is, is coming as, as much as I possibly can from a Jesus centered perspective. So I just feel like I need to say that up front. Um, so let's go back to the, so, you know, the specific thing about the shooting, I think you're right. I, I, I responded, I actually wasn't responding as much to the shooting as I was responding to Christians. Um, I was responding to the fact that I saw so many Christians on Facebook and Twitter uh, going, yeah, you know, go for the headshot kind of a thing. And that was awesome. And what a great thing. And um I think it's a horrible thing. I think I think Christians should take a step back and recognize that we, I mean, think 20 years into the future. Do you want it to be normal that when you go to church, you need to, you and your children need to be wearing bulletproof vests. Um, you need to make sure, you know, that the church that you're attending has a well-armed, trained army of, uh, you know, of, of security people. Like I, I don't things like that. Like I don't want to live in that world. And I don't want to, I don't want the body of Christ and the church to become a place where we are expecting those kinds of things. And we're, and, and we're expecting to respond to violence with violence. And so I think we should probably discuss um, what are, what those options would look like. Right. So for me, I just can't see Jesus applauding someone standing up, you know, in a place where we're gathering to follow the Prince of Peace and then we kill someone who came to kill us, right? So one of the things, one of the comments that I made, and I think this is something you and I can talk about, one of the comments I made was, wow, it's a, it's a good thing that Christians in the first century didn't think the way we do, or when Saul of Tarsus came to their church, they would have killed him. And then he couldn't have been converted you know, on the Damascus road, and he wouldn't have written most of the New Testament. Yeah, no, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, what what you're saying makes sense, logically speaking, but I, I guess the counter to that is, what is the alternative 
And I know in that specific instance, the alternative was, you know, follow Jesus and let Paul or let Saul at the time do whatever he's going to do and just pray that God comes to him in some miraculous way and changes his life. Um, but I, I think the counter, like in, in present day America specifically and the, the church shooting that, that happened in December is, or were the parishioners of that church was to sit back and basically get mowed down by the gunman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a good, that, and that's a great response. And I get that. I understand that response on some level. Um, but, um, but I would like us to consider <laughs> that um, we, in other words, you're like, even what you just said, I mean, it seems like that's our, our, our expectation, right? It's, we only have two options. There are only two options. I mean, at least this is the way I, when I see Christians responding to that kind of an event, I see them acting as if, and even their own mouth, that's exactly what they say. The options are do nothing, sit there, just do nothing at all, or go for the headshot. And um, I would like to submit that between doing nothing and going for the headshot, there are a multitude of responses in between there, and and many of them are preferable to killing another person in in a in a church um, at the hands of another Christian, and and there are also um, responses that um, you know that that will would diffuse the situation without taking anyone's life, or at least with the the, the with the least amount of lives lost. In other words, like. Um, we still would, would do something and we still would stop the shooter, but we would stop the shooter and do something without going only to immediately to deadly force. Yeah, absolutely. I, I get, I get that. And I, I know that in a couple of your posts, you have, you have mentioned, um, using the guns that shoot the, um, the rubber bullets as a way to, to, you know, eliminate the threat without killing the threat, basically. And so, um, you know, I I wanted, and I definitely want to get into the biblical piece of um, how Jesus was, was anti-violence. And I I think it's very difficult to, to make a case that um, Jesus would be pro-guns and and pro- um, basically what we've seen in the evangelical circles. But before we do that, what are your thoughts on, on Christians who, who say, you know, I understand, and I haven't heard this position yet, to be honest with you, but Christians who might say, I understand that Jesus may not be pro-gun, he may not be pro-violence, he may not even be pro-home defense, so to speak, but I don't care about that part. I still want to protect and defend my friends, my family, and I'm going to do so. However, I still love Jesus and I Mm -hmm. still want to follow him in other ways. Um, Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, um, Well, and I definitely want to get into the scriptural side of it. um, But that's a great, great question, too. Um, I mean, again, I I say this as somebody who in my younger years uh, was a member of the NRA. I owned a... um, Browning high power nine millimeter with Pacmire grips that I really loved at the time. Brought, bought it brand new with uh, with money I had saved up. Uh, had a Winchester Defender twelve gauge shotgun with a pistol grip. Had a uh, Ruger twenty two pistol. Um, was back, actually the same model used by the Navy SEALs who perform assassinations. 
And um, it's a great weapon for that purpose. Um, and I owned them and shot them and loved them and enjoyed going out. I mean, never killed anybody. And but I would have been ready to at, at the drop of a hat if I felt, if I felt like I had to. So again, I say this as somebody who knows guns, has owned guns, uh, enjoys shooting them recreationally. I understand. I get all of that. Um, I guess as I have as I have continued to in my own spiritual journey of wanting to follow Jesus closely uh, and have slowly let go of my guns. And, and, and in other words, I, I have made a decision to remove that as an option for me. So for me, it's not an option for me to use a gun. However, you make a great point, and I, and I will concede that um, the idea of protecting loved ones is, is a, I would say, is a Christian concept. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, and when he's telling us what love is, uh, one of those things that love does is love always protects. So protection is definitely part of what it means to have an ethic of love. Um, but protection, again, doesn't always equal, doesn't necessarily entail deadly force. Um, as an example, I'll just tell a story. This isn't original with me, but a friend of mine, this was his story. Um, he, he was also someone wanting to follow Jesus um, and he actually took a trip to India and, um, when he was younger in his college years and, um, as he was walking through the, the crowds there, uh, he, he could hear, there was like uh, people everywhere. I was like, you know, there's just people everywhere, but he saw this kind of crowd of people and he could hear like someone calling for help and, um, uh, like some commotion going on. So he kind of pushed his way through the crowd. He said, you know, as a white man in India, you kind of command some presence. And so everybody saw, oh, wow, this is some American guy. They were making room for him as he was kind of parting the crowd and kind of drawing near to what this commotion was. And he wanted to help. He wanted so much to be, you know, to make a difference there for the kingdom. And when the crowd parted, what he saw were two Indian police officers with billy clubs beating mercilessly an old um, man. It was like skinny, impoverished, no physical threat to anybody. Like he wasn't, he obviously was not hurting anyone physically. He was actually just getting beaten by these two police officers with their billy clubs. And so he comes up finally and the old man looks at him with, with you know, he, he makes eye contact with the old man and the old man's looking at him like, help me. And of course the cops are looking at him like, you know, come on, are you gonna, you gonna do something? And he said, he just stood there for a minute, was kind of paralyzed and then slowly backed away. And then the cops turned back and just kept on beating this guy and he walked away. And he said it, it was the most devastating thing in his life. And he, he wrestled with that for years. He said he, he felt like such a failure. It's like, God, why didn't I, why didn't I do something? And what could I have done? And, you know, um, he wrestled with that for a long, long time. So fast forward about 10 years, he was serving, um, uh, actually living with a family in uh, Orange County, California, in a place that was a lot of gang activity, Living, he was living with an Hispanic family. They had like five kids. Uh, they let him rent a room there. Um, he slept on the floor. And he just got to know them. He was just trying to learn the culture there. And again, looking for ways he could be a servant and be a blessing. And he really, and he lived there for several months with that family. And he got to like feel a part of the family. So one, one afternoon, like a Saturday afternoon, uh, again, he hears a commotion outside on the street. There's a big crowd around. He runs out there to the street in the little cul-de-sac where the house is, where they, where they live in the neighborhood. And there's a gang and there's, and there's a known gang. He had seen this gang as a rival gang um, to that neighborhood. And, and the gang members, these guys have guns, they have knives, they have clubs, and they are beating 
the teenage boy that he shares a room with in this house, who he loves now like a brother. And he said, Keith, without a moment's hesitation, I jumped and threw my body on this young boy. And then they started kicking me and hitting me. And I'm taking the, the beating. And finally, the leader of the gang makes everybody stop. And he looks at me and he says, what are you doing? Get up. You're crazy. You know, this isn't about you. What are you doing? And he said, I stood up and I looked at this guy in the eye and I said, this is my friend. And if you're going to do something to him, you're going to have to go through me. And they just stood there. And now, now the gang was paralyzed. And they're looking at each other. And they finally go, well, forget this guy. And they get, and they get in their cars and they drive away. And as he's walking back, you know, with this bloody friend, this kid, as he's walking back to the house to clean up this kid who's gone through this beating, he says, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he said, the difference, my friend, with, between what just happened with this young boy and the, the old man in India is this. You love this young man. And without a moment's hesitation, you threw your body on this boy to protect him. And you took the blows that he was taking. And if you had loved that old man on the street, you would have done the same thing. And so, again, if we're compelled by love, this is what I believe Jesus is wanting us to understand. And what, I, what frustrates me that we don't seem to understand is that when Jesus says to love your enemy, what he's asking you to consider is not, not simply if a, an intruder entered your house with a gun and was holding it to your spouse's head or one of your children's heads uh, and was ranting and raving and, and was violent and out of control, um, what would you do? Well, of course, the only option is grab your gun and kill him, shoot him in the head, right? You got to. Here's a scenario where your only choice is you have to use deadly force to save someone you love, to protect them, right? Well, I believe what Jesus is wanting us to, to do is to consider something else, to, to take it a bit further, right? To Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? No, no, I want you to love even their, your enemies. So Jesus would give us a different scenario. Jesus would say, what if the person with the gun to your spouse's head or to one of your children's head was your own mother or father or spouse or child. Now, how would you respond? Because you love both of them because you want to protect both of them. Well, now I tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to blow the brains out of my own son or my own parent or my own spouse, just because they're in a moment where they've got a gun to someone's head who I also love. My goal in that moment is to, is to, if I can protect both of them. And if I have to, because I love both, I might throw my body between the two of them. I might accept the violence. I might take the beating, right? I might even take the bullet. That's what love would do. And this is what I want Christians to understand. That this is the, the, there's a higher thing that Jesus wants us to consider when it comes to violence, when it comes to situations like this. That protection doesn't have to involve deadly force. Um, that protection can look very, very different. Uh, and even, you know, um, Resisting violence can can doesn't have to be deadly force. It can look really different and should look different. And again, I think the other thing is that there isn't a formula. I think, again, we're always looking for formulas. In this situation, always do blank. I don't know that I would always say that about anything, right? Every situation is going to have its own particular response. And so we're, we can't have that automatic, unfortunately. I don't think we don't have that luxury of saying in, in any situation with violence, always do blank. I, I would say, um, so it, So the work, we have to do work in uh, like now. We have to prepare today, right now, um, to prepare ourselves for, for creative ways to respond, 
right? So we need to be thinking about that and considering that and living that out now so that when we are placed in those situations, we're prepared, we're ready to respond in a way that's, that is loving. Um, that is the way that Jesus would want us to respond. Man, that story is incredible. I think it's a, it's a beautiful picture and it's, I, it sounds like something that Jesus would say. I mean, it, it really yeah. does. And it, it sounds reflective of the, of the way he lived and the way he died. And so, you know, when, when you read the, the Bible in a very plain reading, and I think most would probably come to this conclusion, Jesus would have that, that same view, the one that you just described. So how have Christians gotten it so twisted and how have they justified it biblically um, to be, you know, protective up until the point of even killing the intruder or the person that's, that's trying to kill them? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, again, I, there may not be one answer for everyone. I, I just feel like I know that for myself, uh, it was much easier to justify that kind of re- reaction and response because um, I had really bought into a very Americanized version, I think, of Christianity, right? And so, uh, <clears throat> so you know, the Second Amendment was more in my more in the front of my brain than the Sermon on the Mount, um, and so I, I think that's part of it. Um, I think we have to start with Jesus, and I think this is the difference. I think if we start with Jesus, we're going to end up in a very different place than if we start with "I'm an American and these are my rights." Um, well then, okay, <laughs> if that's your starting point, then yeah, you're going to end up somewhere different than I am. If I start with, um, I'm following Jesus and Jesus says this and Jesus encourages this, then I'm going to end up in a very different place. Um, and again, that's part of why, you know, I wrote the book, Jesus Untangled to kind of address the political aspect of it. It's also why I wrote Jesus Unbound, which deals with the scriptural perspective, because I think quite often, um, what ends up happening is Jesus Instead, rather than Jesus being our absolute authority, um, Jesus gets, when we take a flat Bible perspective, that the the, the Bible is one book and um, the Old Testament is equally authoritative as Jesus is, um, then it's very easy to, well, I can point to Old Testament passages where God commanded violence and there you go. So now that justifies my violence. And then I can ignore all all the very, very plain commands that Jesus gave to his followers about not using violence and about overcoming evil with good and blessing those who curse you and doing good to those who hate you and all these things. Um, I just basically all of those commands of Jesus get erased uh, almost automatically because, well, but Jesus told Joshua to go and kill a bunch of people. Yeah, so I guess to go to, to that specifically, um, because that is a some of the passages that that people use to justify, um, you know, having that belief. So, I guess give your opinion of of what kind of God that was. Because was it the same God in the Old Testament as the New Testament? Did did Jesus support violence at one point, or um, was it just somebody's understanding of God in the Old Testament? Yeah, yeah. I would say no. I wouldn't say it's a different God. Um, I think I think it's the same God, <clears throat> and I think that's what Jesus tries to say, is that no, but but what he does is clarify to us who the Father really is. Um, again, what I think um, we miss, there's a nuance that, that a lot of times Christians miss in the Old Testament, is that there is not one idea 
of who the Old Testament God is. There are different opinions expressed even in the Old Testament scriptures. There's disagreement. Does God command sacrifice or not? Well, some some Old Testament writers say he does. Some Old Testament writers challenge that idea and say, well, actually, he doesn't care about that at all. Um, and so you get differing views and differing opinions of who, who God really is in the Old Testament writings. G- and, and the New Testament acknowledges this, right? It, it acknowledges that in John chapter 1, it says no one has ever seen God at any time except for the Son. And the Son came to reveal the Father to us. And so Jesus what Jesus is doing is clarifying for us. He's sort of settling that argument. And he's showing us very, very clearly, this is who the Father is. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the key things Jesus says about who the Father is, is that the Father is someone who loves his enemies. And that because the Father blesses the just and the unjust, he brings rain on the just and on the unjust alike. He blesses both the, the righteous and the unrighteous because of that. That's why you should also love your enemies. And um, and by the way, when Jesus says that God brings rain on the just and on the unjust, he's contradicting specifically something that Moses said in Deuteronomy, because Moses says the opposite. Moses says, no, nope, God only blesses the righteous and brings rain on the righteous, but on the unrighteous, he dries up their fields and doesn't send rain. So Jesus says, well, no, actually, that's not true. The Father sends rain on both, and because he's that way, you also should be that way. You also should love your enemy. So I think that's more of a clarification that Jesus is wanting to do for us is to help us to clearly see who the Father it truly is. And Jesus actually even says almost exactly that in Matthew. He says, um, no one knows the Father except for the Son and, the, and to whomever the Son chooses to reveal the Father. And so that means without Jesus, you're not going to clearly see the Father. If you're only looking at Moses, if you're only looking at the Old Testament, and you're not looking at it through the lens of Christ, Jesus says you're not seeing clearly. Paul says it too. He says, to this day when they read the Old Testament scriptures, a veil covers their eyes, and only in Christ is that veil removed. So over and over again in the New Testament, we have this affirming idea that Jesus tells us who the Father really is and what the Father's character and nature is truly like. And what we see revealed in Jesus is that um, he's not violent. He's not angry. He's not wrathful. Um, he's loving and forgiving and merciful. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, though, I th- evangelicals will also pull um, New Testament verses to defend their views as well. Um, so, what are some of those verses, and and yeah. how would you how would you I guess take those apart? Because you sure. know the you know the Bible better than me, Keith. So why why don't you just give the <laughs> give the arguments well, both for and against? <laughs> well, I, I will say I don't know about if I know the Bible better than you, but I certainly know this argument better than you. Yeah. I, I, for the last ten years, I've been having these conversations uh, with people. Well, anybody who's been on your Facebook page or Twitter lately, they know that as well. Yeah. So so the typical yeah right you're right. So there are plenty of New Testament scriptures as well that get thrown around um, by Christians to justify. Uh, violence, um, a violent response. So let's just see if I can remember them all at the top of my head. So the, one of the first ones I always get is um, where Jesus t- tells his disciples, he actually tells them to go and buy a sword. Um, and he says this in Luke, and I think it's also repeated in um, in Matthew as well. He's really referring to the Bible, right? Guys, go to Lifeway, purchase a Bible. Yes. Yeah, the sword. You need to, yeah, yeah, go, yeah. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, go, the Bible, the sword. Yeah, exactly. Um, so 
So what's interesting about that verse is that just Christians love to quote that. They'll say, oh, Jesus told them to go and buy a sword. Therefore, God, you know, look at that. Jesus is commanding them to use to use a weapon for self-defense. Right. Well, the problem with that assumption is that when they used it for self-defense, like a few hours later, he rebukes them. He tells Peter, put your sword away. Those that live by the sword die by the sword. So if you go back, I always encourage you, please, if you're, if you're not sure about this, I just go and read it. Go, go find the verse that says where Jesus says, go and buy a sword and notice that when he says it, he says this in the exact same breath, so that the scriptures will be fulfilled about me. So in other words, there's a prophecy about the Messiah in the Old Testament that says that the, that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. And so in other words, his disciples need to be carrying some, at least some kind of a weapon so that it would be true about them to say, well, look, they were carrying weapons and they, and they used them in some way, right? Um, and so when they, that's why when they say, here's two swords, he says, it's enough. Well, two swords are not enough for 13 guys to fight off the, a Roman legion. Two swords are enough to fulfill that prophecy. And that's all he means. And in fact, again, also when, when Peter uses the sword, not only does he rebuke Peter, he also says, nevertheless, the scriptures about me must be fulfilled. And then he quotes the Old Testament passage again. So that command of going by a sword is only about fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy about his followers, not about him, um, and not about self-defense. Because, again, when they use it in such a way, they're rebuked for it. And he tells them the reason why he's even giving that command. So that's that's how I would respond to that. Um, that usually when it gets thrown up about going by a sword. Um, there's a couple of, couple more things, uh, a couple of other verses. Uh, another one quite often is, well, you know, Jesus made a whip and, uh, beat some people and kicked them out of the temple. Again, I would encourage you to go and read the actual, uh, passage because what you'll notice is, is that when, uh, if you read the actual passage, what it says is, is that he fashioned a whip and then it says he chased them all out of the temple and then comma both the sheep and the oxen. So he took a whip and he chased them all out of the temple, both sheep and oxen. So what's he chasing? Sheep and oxen. He's not using the whip on any human being. And again, just go to the scripture. It, it tells you plainly what, what he's doing with the whip. And he's doing no more violent than a farmer who's plowing a field, right? Who's driving his donkey or his oxen or his mule or whatever, uh, to plow a field. It's not violent against even the animals, really. He's just using it to crack, to get them to run, to chase them out of the temple. Um, trying to think of another one. Uh, what's another New Testament passage? It's interesting to me, though, on that specific one, how how you would draw a conclusion that just, even if you did read it in a different way than what you're reading it, how would you use Jesus chasing anyone or anything out of the temple as as justifying violence up until the point of death. Like that's that it does it still is not that doesn't really register with with yeah. me. Um yeah. the the logic behind that. It yeah, seems well, like you have to do some um, pretty good scriptural gymnastics to to get to that point. Right. And that's definitely though but but you know if you're desperate to to hold on to it then you know you're gonna you're gonna grasp at anything you can that you think supports this idea. I, I just remembered another one. So another New Testament passage um, is the one where Jesus says, 
Um, do you think that I've come to bring peace upon the earth? Um, I say to you, I have not, not peace, but a sword. Um, and you can usually, they stop right there. They'll just quote that little bit. As if what Jesus is saying is, I did not come to bring peace. I only came to bring sword, meaning violence. Well, okay, first of all, what? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He did not come to bring violence. If Again, keep reading. Go back and read it again. What he says is right after that is to turn a father against his son, a son against his father, a mother against his daughter. Again, he's not picturing mothers and fathers stabbing each other and killing each other. That's not at all. So he's talking about disagreements in within even within families where there'd be a tension in the family about whether he's the Messiah or not the Messiah. There's a division that's going to come because of disagreement over himself, over Jesus. And that's the plain understanding of what he's saying. Now, the other thing that's missing, and I don't want to go too deep into this. I did write a blog post about it. And I think I may have mentioned it in, I think I probably go through it in Jesus Unbound, uh, the book uh, also. But there's something called limited negatives, and it's a Jewish idiom that um, Jesus employs quite often, where uh, where he'll say, not this, but that. Like another example is Jesus says, um, um, uh, what's another example? He says something like, uh, one of the examples, he says, oh, don't work for, do not work for uh, food which perishes, uh, but rather, you know, work for things that are, you know, heavenly heavenly things that don't wear out and don't whatever. Um, you know, there's another place where he says um, they were born, not of flesh and blood, but of spirit and blah, blah, blah. So uh, the limited negative idiom is a way of, it's a, sort of a hyperbole, but it's used to basically say like what you hear with your ears is not this, but that. But if you look again, the, the implied meaning is not only this, but especially that. And so again, let's go to the example of born not of flesh and blood, but of the spirit. So we're talking about human beings that were not born with human parents, because that's what you would mean if he was saying this person wasn't born of flesh and blood. Obviously, everyone alive was born of flesh and blood. He's saying not only, not merely of flesh and blood, but especially or additionally of the spirit. Um, or again, don't work only for food or things of the earth which perish and wear away, wear out. Or go away or consumed, but but also and especially work for the things of the kingdom that are up in heaven that they last forever. Again, Jesus is not saying quit your job and stop working for your food. That's obviously not what he's saying. And it's in that same sort of limited negative idiom when Jesus says, "I have come not to bring peace, but a sword." He's saying, "Not I'm not just the Prince of Peace. I'm not. I am bringing peace, but I'm not only bringing peace, but I'm also unfortunately bringing division between people over disagreeing over over, over who I am." That's all he means to say. Hmm. Um, but again, it's also a misunderstanding. Sometimes it's unintentional because I don't think I've never seen anyone misunderstand those other passages yeah. when he uses that exact same sort of limited negative phrasing. No one goes, "Jesus commands us to quit our jobs and not to work for food." No, right. I've never heard anyone use that scripture to argue that, right? Yeah. Um, but but apparently it's easy to use it for this particular passage. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I thought about as you were talking earlier, um, you know, Christians they they believe that the ultimate mission, the Great Commission, is to go and make disciples of all nations. The the goal for especially conservative 
Christians, conservative evangelicals is we want to get as many people to heaven as possible. We want to save people. And so yeah. if if those are the same people that are defending um, their gun violence and and being able to kill people if they are being attacked, then their belief is probably that that shooter would be going to hell when they died. So yep. it's it's ironic that they believe their ultimate mission on earth is to make sure people get to heaven. However, they are justifying killing that person and personally sending them to hell um, because of their belief in hell. Right. Yeah, you know, that's uh, and that's actually uh, some of that, exactly what you're saying is the early church, um, you know, we have this very rich, although sadly mostly forgotten, um, legacy of about 300 years, 300 or more years of church history um, in the early times, first century, second century, into the third century of the Christian church, um, where the, the you know, it's almost univo- it's univocal, like you don't have any Christian um, teachers or speakers or leaders of the early church uh, that are pro-violence, that encourage people to join the military, that encourage people to, 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 uh, you know, use violence to resist, um, the Romans or people that are persecuting them or any of those things. So, um, and, and when they did so, they did so kind of exactly on what you're saying. Um, they based it on the fact that Jesus was nonviolent, uh, the example of Jesus that, um, you know, he, he, Jesus famously said to Pilate, uh, we have this recorded in John, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would fight. And so they took that to heart. You know, they took it to heart when Jesus disarmed Peter, that he disarmed every believer. Um, and so, uh, and they also took it to heart, as you said, that, you know, we, we're assured of our relationship with the Father. Um, these unbelievers are not. And so for us, if we kill them and they die in this particular state, yeah, I mean, what have I, what have I done for them versus me where I know I'm going to go instantly to be in the presence of God? Um, so, yeah, that's, it's also kind of inconsistent with some of that theology. Like if you really did believe that if you were to die, you would go instantly to, to the presence of God. But if you kill this other person, they would go instantly to an eternal torment in hell for eternity without any hope. Uh, again, you you would hopefully, if you think a Christian, a Christ-like response uh, would be, well, look, it's better for me to die and this person may at least have a chance. Um, there's a guy named Benjamin Corey. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff, but Benjamin Corey has a really great blog post about that. He, he talked about, it's been a couple of years ago, but he, he wrote a, an interesting blog post about all of the potential good that could come from me as a believer dying rather than responding with, with deadly force if someone came against me. So in other words, if that person did come to me with a weapon and, and come to kill me and I responded in love and I was said, you know, I'm not going to respond this way. And in fact, I'm going to bless you. And, and then they kill me anyway. Well, that person then goes to jail knowing that I refuse to do violence because I, because of the love of Christ. Now they've got years and years to read the Bible, to think about that, to consider that this horrible, why did I kill this person? But even though I was wanting to kill them, they, they were responding with love and grace to me. Well, what, who would do that? Why would anyone do that? And again, this is what Jesus intends when he tells us to turn the other cheek, when he tells us those who curse us, um, he's wanting us to give a response that is unexpected. 
So again, if someone's doing violence to you, they're expecting violence back, right? I hit you, I bring it on, let's go. I know what's going to happen next. So when you res- you don't respond that way, and in fact, you respond with the absolute polar opposite of that, and your response is to bless them and love them and forgive them and show mercy to them, it just makes them go, whoa, what? Wait a minute, who does that? Why, why are you not responding the way every 99% of everybody on the planet would respond. That's what's it's supposed to happen. The, the, it's supposed to be an opportunity when these things happen. It's supposed to be an opportunity for the kingdom of God to break in to that moment, for there to be the potential, not, not the guarantee, uh, because yeah, maybe the good chance you'll die. <laughs> you might end up dead in, in that response. But there's the opportunity and the potential if you respond with love that the person could literally be disarmed and and, be, and and step back and say, wow, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you responded that way. And by the way, there are dozens and dozens of examples of this. I should start sharing some of these on Facebook um, where people have responded to someone with a weapon or with a gun or a knife who's come to kill them or rob them or attack them. And they've responded in a, in a very unexpected, loving way. And it has disarmed them. And it, it has de-escalated the situation. And, and a beautiful response, uh, you know, a beautiful outcome, uh, you know, came out of that. So again, it's something where I, I just, what breaks my heart is when I see Christians who don't even have, um, don't even have the imagination that there is another way to respond to these kinds of things except deadly force. You know, I think we're totally missing the opportunity that Jesus wants us to, to see this as, as an opportunity to show love. Um, you know, you mentioned again, I, I, I did mention on, on the Facebook post, I said something about rubber bullets. Well, to be really honest, if it was my church, I mean, I don't have a church, but if I, let's say I was a pastor of a church, um, I, I wouldn't even do that. I wouldn't even want rubber bullets. But I only threw that out as an option to say, what if, you know, if there was a church that wanted, that, that started off saying, we want to follow Jesus. Our intention and desire is to obey Jesus in not using deadly force against people who hate us and hurt us, want to hurt us. At least rubber bullets would be an improvement. It would show at least some attempt at an imagination of some kind of a compromise that would say, well, we really still want to follow Jesus here. Um, maybe rubber bullets. Like, I could at least respect that on some level of like, well, at least they're trying to meet Jesus halfway, right? Um, to do something, right? To have some kind of a plan in place that that would say, we don't want to kill people in church on Sunday morning. That we prefer not to do that. And we prefer to respond in a way, um, even if it was using force, it wouldn't need to be deadly force. Yeah. you. We've been discussing this on, on more of a micro level, but let's, I guess, move it up a notch to the macro level, which... Um, in the news here recently, we've had um, some, you know, serious military actions taking place overseas and in, in the Middle East. And um, the United States had an airstrike on on our well, it was in Iraq, but on the Iranian general. And then Iran responded by um, hitting a um, hitting a base in Iraq with some military forces. So. And I, I guess my question is, where, how do we defeat evil on a macro level if if we're unwilling to 
to kill if we're unwilling to to do something besides try to lay down our life because um, mm-hmm. in in the bigger scheme of things that might not have been what what ended World War II would have you know so just using that as an example sure. but um, what do you think on that? Yeah, well, that's a. This is a boy. We could do a whole other podcast just on this question. Yeah, I might have opened a can of worms right there. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll try to. I'll try to be brief. You know, that's hard for me, but I'll try to be brief. Um, I, I think here again is part of the challenge for us is to say we. So when you talk about the United States of America and you talk about a an airstrike or a drone strike against a terrorist threat or something, or someone we've identified as a threat to the United States government um, and ask how, how should we respond? Well, my definition of we is not, I don't include myself in the United States government. Um, We for me is the body of Christ and we as the body of Christ really have nothing to do with what's going on in Iran or Iraq or uh, political things or, you know, assassination attempts. I mean, like we're not in that equation. We shouldn't be. I, I would I would encourage us not to be. That's not really where we should be uh, at. Uh, if if But if you're asking, you know, well, the United States government, well, I would submit that empires and governments are going to go to war. They have been from the beginning. They always will. Um, Christians not do not necessarily need to participate in those actions. Um, and I would, I, in fact, I wrote a blog post the other day about the fact that, you know, if you look at how many millions or billions of Christians there are on the planet and how many millions of Christians there are in America specifically, if every Christian in the world took so super seriously Jesus commands not to do violence and just refused to participate in any violence and did not, and, 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 you know, would not involve our, in ourselves in the military. I really don't think most, most governments on the planet could have enough people to go to war. Their ability to do war, to, to go to war would be, if not, if not eliminated, it would be greatly diminished. Um, and so I think our Christian involvement in military and, in, and the actions of the empire and the governments and those kinds of things, uh, we can have a huge impact on that by simply refusing to participate. Um, I, per, personally, by the way, this is what I think is what's really going on in Romans. Um, Christians love to go to Romans 13 and talk about, you know, that, um, that the, uh, the government wields the sword and it's the servant of God. You know, Paul says that the, the, the government is a, is the, the servant of God. Um, the problem is again, Christians read themselves into Romans 13. But the, the, that's the problem because Romans 12, the chapter before that, that's the verse where Paul's talking to the church. Romans 12 is where he talks to the to Christians, right? He talks about uh, submitting your bodies as a living sacrifice. He talks about using your spiritual gifts and love for one another. Romans 12 is, the, is instructions for the body of Christ. Then he switches directions and he talks about this other group, a different group of people, not us, the empire, the government the military and he talks about them and they they wield the sword christians wield a cross both of them are deadly weapons but the cross only kills us the cross is intended to crucify my flesh and it's not a, it's not an offensive weapon against other people right and so um the the challenge has been throughout christian history pretty much since constantine um christians have wanted to carry both the sword and the cross. Um, and yet 
Well, there's actually a verse of scripture in the New Testament where Paul talks about how we carry weapons of righteousness in both hands. That means we're, it, the cross is a two-handed tool. It takes both hands to carry a cross. It's not one hand cross, one hand uh, deadly weapon, uh, you know, the, the sword. So we, we don't carry the sword of the state. We don't carry the, the, the power of death. We actually carry something that brings life, right, this eternal life of Christ, um, through this, again, the power of the cross, where we're self-sacrificing, others-focused, um, allowing the life of Christ to live in us. That should be our focus. And so um, I understand the confusion, um, I, again, because I was confused about that for a long, long time. Um, I don't think Jesus's commands are to wider governments. No government ever in the history of the world has ever even attempted to put the Sermon on the Mount into practice. And I think actually if they tried to, they would cease being governments. Um, you know what I mean? They would all be invaded immediately by all the other governments not following Jesus. Um, but individually, we as individuals are called to follow Christ and in this way of enemy love. So that's one. That, that would be my response to that. So just going back into the Old Testament and looking at it from a macro level as well, it, it certainly seems like Israel was was commanded by God multiple times to to go into war to take over lands to um, rummage cities and and so how how does that translate with um, with your perspective? Well, okay, two things. Um, if we just took that at face value, um, Israel, according to the Old Testament scriptures, was a nation that um, was that God created. Uh, and so in the formation of the nation of Israel, we have angels appearing to the patriarchs, to Abraham. Um, we have angels, God himself even, uh, appearing and speaking in a cloud to Moses. We have incredible miracles. Um, you know, the, the children of, uh, of Israel being uh, brought out of Egypt, the whole Passover situation, the, you know, going across, crossing the Red Sea, crossing the Jordan miraculously, um, miraculously marching around, um, you know, the, the Jericho and the walls falling down, all that, right? And so all of those supernatural events um, speak to the Israel as a nation being formulated by God for a specific purpose. So when the United States of America was formed, um, where are the stories of God appearing to George Washington or Thomas Jefferson in a cloud of fire or a pillar, you know, of smoke or something like that. Well, yeah. we don't have that. Well, what about, you know, these huge visions, you know, that Benjamin Franklin had this vision of something God spoke to him. No, we don't have that either. Well, where are these big, massive miracles? No, none of that either. Oh, so America is not equal to the nation of Israel on that same level. It's no, not it's equal. It's, it's better, Keith. It's not equal. <laughs> it's better. <laughs> um, so I would just say from that level, like we're not, we cannot write ourselves into that story. Now, just put on, put on that costume and pretend that we're like the nation of Israel because we're not. Um, so that, that's one level. That's not who we are as a nation. We can't just declare that we are and then, and then expect that God is blessing all of, all of the violence that we're doing around the world. That's one level. The other level, of course, is again, which I, uh, I, I would dispute whether or not legitimately, if, let's put it this way, if God really is unchanging, and if God truly is like Jesus, 
In other words, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Um, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I what the Father you know tells me to speak. Um, the Father is reflected 100% in Jesus. Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Okay, do you now go back? Keep that in mind. Now, do you do you think it's likely that Jesus commanded um, the Israelites to go and gut a bunch of pregnant women? to kill a bunch of toddlers and children, to show no mercy in the process of doing that, and that God was pleased with that? I would say no. I think that's one of those things that was murky and cloudy that, that uh, people before Jesus, before Christ, um, did not clearly see who the Father was. That was part of the misunderstanding of who the Father, what the Father was like. In Jesus, we see a God who does not do those things, does not command those things. Um, and so... I would even look at some of those examples of like, uh, I think quite often violence is done and then it sort of gets justified that, well, God blessed us because we won the battle. We went into battle and we won, right? So that must mean God blessed us. And that's kind of the sort of primitive thinking that goes on. Um, and certainly in a pre-Christian society, uh, you know, if we win the battle, then God's on our side. Yeah, man. I mean, you, you, you make a compelling argument for, for for these things and in in kind of closing this wrapping this this piece of it up and I there's one other thing I, I want to talk to you about before um before we close the episode but um why do you think it is that why do you think it is that that Christians have such a hard time letting go of of that piece of of the violence of the defense of the protection what is it that that makes them, and I, mean, I say them, but I'm including myself in this as well. Um, why is it so hard to let go of, of the fact that if somebody does us harm, if somebody's trying to kill my wife, you best believe they're going to have to go through the six guns that I have in my house before they lay a mm-hmm. hand on her. You know, I mean, what is, what yeah. is it that that allows us, I guess, psychologically, spiritually, to truly believe? Because I, I believe Christians do really believe they want to follow Jesus. They they want to do the right thing, but yet they really do want to hang on to their guns as well. Yeah. Um, well, that's it, that's a tough one. I mean, I think again, for some people, it might just be like again for me. Uh, I had to recognize it growing up. If I look back, I realize all my heroes as a kid growing up had had a gun, you know, James West, Matt Dillon, John Wayne, Starsky and Hutch, you know, all those guys, James Bond, all, they always had a gun. I couldn't even imagine, I can't even hardly think of a hero in my life uh, that didn't have a gun. And we can't imagine a hero, a good guy who doesn't have a gun. Um, so that's part of it. Culturally, we're, we've been really, really bought into this idea that uh, heroes have guns and good guys use deadly force. And that's what a hero is. You know, we cheer when Dirty Harry blows the bad guy away. Yay. Uh, But again, we do that. None of that has anything to do with Jesus. Uh, um, I think, again, if we if we really, really start with Jesus, um, then we're going to run into this. We're going to see that Jesus says things like this, um, like love your enemy and bless those who curse you and turn the other cheek and overcome evil with good. Um, and, and by the way, in the same Sermon on the Mount, he ends it by saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? So there is an expectation, Jesus says, that he, he expects that we will 
do these things. Of course, it's very hard. I think we look at those things and, and part of us just says, ugh, I can't do that. That's not in me. And you're right. It's not in you. It's not automatic. If, if we came out of the box like that, we wouldn't need Jesus to show up and tell us, hey, there's another way to live. There's another way to think. Metanoia, right? Repent. That's what that means. He, he's, he kicks off the Sermon on the Mount telling us, by the way, think differently. Hold on. We're going to go in another direction. You haven't thought of this all before. And that's why it's going to sound difficult or different because you haven't thought of it before. But but if you go in this other direction, Jesus is suggesting. And by the way, it does seem counterintuitive. It does seem impossible or hard, but it's not. Jesus even promises that it's not. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. We have all kinds of verses in the New Testament that tell us that the spirit of God empowers us with every good thing to 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 accomplish the will of God in our life. So there's we have, through the Holy Spirit, the ability to do these things. And it will take intention, and it will take discipline, and it will take uh, a desire to uh, to do that. Again, we're not perfectly going to do it. We're going to make mistakes. But our, if, our, if our intention is to, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to obey you. That's all I'm asking, is that we as Christians say and mean we want to follow Jesus, not not our government, not politics, not tribalism, not uh, the American idea of heroism or any of that. We want to start with Jesus and follow him. Um, that should be our intention. It's kind of hard to for a Christian to argue with another Christian who's, who's saying that their whole objective is they want to follow Jesus. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. you, well, but before we... Think- ju- before we jump into um, the, kind of this this final topic, and I know we only have a few minutes left, um, and I, I feel like we won't really be doing it justice, but I want to give you the opportunity to give any closing thoughts or comments on um, on violence, guns, that sort of thing before we jump into the next. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. A couple of things just real quick. Um, if you doubt that Jesus is nonviolent, I encourage you to go to Isaiah, Isaiah 53 and verse 9 where this is a prophetic verse in the Old Testament telling us who the Messiah is and what the Messiah will be like. Um, and it, what it says is that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. So Jesus did not do any violence. The temple situation was not him doing any violence. And he didn't encourage others to do violence. So when he told them to go and buy a sword, he was not encouraging them to do any violence either. If he did, he wasn't the Messiah. So we have to just begin. We have to really just nail this down. Jesus was not violent, and he did not encourage us to be violent. He encouraged us to do something uh, astounding and different to respond in a way that was uh, based on love for the enemy, love for others. Even, yes, by the way, that kind of love will get you killed. Uh, That's why Jesus says, count the cost, right, before you follow me, before you take up your cross and follow me, count the cost. Uh, in other words, taking up your cross at the beginning of the journey of following Jesus assumes you're going to die. In fact, your death is assumed in the fact that you're carrying an instrument of your own death. Um, I, I would again, I would just encourage anyone who's who's hearing us have this conversation to read, to study, to really start with Jesus. Um, I'm open to these conversations. I've been having them for over a decade now. There's lots of great books uh, out there that deal with this this kind of an issue. Um, but I, I would I would encourage us that we have an opportunity to respond in a way that shows the world that the gospel can transform lives. That it starts by transforming us into people that respond in uncommon, unexpected ways. 
um, but ways that are always loving and always caring for uh, everyone involved. That that's really one of the most powerful things about the gospel that we have that Jesus gave to us. Um, so I guess that's where I'd like to encourage people. And let me do one last thing, and I'll, I'll try to be quick. But someone pointed out on that specific shooting that happened that kind of kicked this whole conversation off on, you know, when the man that came into the church there, and I believe it was in Dallas, um, I was reading an article about it. And then if you notice in the article, what it talked about was the fact that the the security people at this church who who were all, you know, many of them were armed. Um, they noticed this guy when he walked in the door. They said, oh, we saw him when he walked in. He he was obviously wearing a wig. He was looking shifty. He looked, he looked, you know, like something was up. And we had our eye on him from the beginning. Um, and then, of course, he stood up and opened fire, and then they killed him. But my thing would be, again, if you are a church who wanted to avoid violence, you did not want to use any deadly force against somebody, then when you saw somebody come in with a wig on acting weird, Walk up to them and give them a big hug, shake their hand, ask them what their name is, sit next to them in the pew during the service. And so that way, if the guy stands up, you're right there, you know, wrap your arms around, give him a big bear hug, you know, fall to the ground. You know, you had, the, in other words, there was an opportunity right from the beginning for for that for people in that church to respond in a way that wasn't deadly, that didn't use deadly force. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, that that. We as Christians, if we're going to live in a world that that has gun violence like this as as something normal, um, there are much more creative ways to go about responding that I think are more Christ honoring ways. Yeah, that that's a great point. I haven't read that article, but um, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if he'd have walked into my church, he would have had his hands full because he'd have gotten a connect card when he walked in. He'd have had a <laughs> cup of coffee in the other hand. I mean, you can't even hold a gun with a cup of coffee. <laughs> Um, especially a shotgun. So um, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, well, look, man, I know we, um, we only have a a few minutes left, but I I really want to tackle this with you um, or let you tackle it and me sit back and enjoy it. But um, you know, it's an election year. And one of the things that, that always comes up um, during an election, it seems to never fail is, is the issue of abortion, whether or not that's a, a prevalent um, issue among the candidates or not, but but you wrote an article um, or a blog post rather um, entitled "the the shiny red button: How Republicans Use Abortion to Manipulate Christians." Talk a little bit about um, that post and and what the the intent was behind it and how that is taking place in politics. Right. Yeah, <clears throat> it's something that um, took me a while to notice. Again, I'm I'm a I'm a former Republican, conservative Christian. Um, I'm not a liberal now. I'm, I'm actually no politics at all anymore. So when I critique conservative politics, um, I'm not doing so from a liberal perspective. Um, but what I just noticed about this when I, w- when I was a conservative was the fact that um, it's really this whole issue of abortion, which, by the way, I'm anti-abortion. I, I'm not pro-abortion. I think uh, you know an abortion stops a human heartbeat, and it's horrible, and we shouldn't do we shouldn't do that. Um, we should always again look for other ways to respond to these kinds of situations. However, on a political level, um, what we notice is that um, conservative politicians uh, and Republican, you know, sort of the Republican machine, um, will use this issue of abortion to really basically I call it the shiny red button because it's like they light it up. Everybody gets angry and upset about it. Yes, we must stop abortion. And we're going to give speeches about it. Yeah, vote for me. And everyone goes and votes for the guy. And then nothing happens. They take that button 
They put it back under the desk and they wait till the next election cycle. And by the way, this is proven. We can go back and look at all the statistics. All this, you know, go back to Reagan. You know, we had uh, we had a uh, we had Reagan as a president, two terms. We had uh, George H. Bush one term. We had George W. Bush two terms. Um, during during that time frame, we had a majority Republicans in Congress, and so. If, hey, there was our opportunity. If we were serious about overturning Roe versus Wade, that was it. And guess what? No one, no Republican introduced any legislation to do that. Why? Well, because it works too well to get votes. And here's the thing. If you solve that problem now, how in the, it, it, there's no other topic that, that is equal to riling people up, right? Getting American conservative Christians angry and upset to go out and vote for this guy because, well, he, he's pro-life. But understand that just voting for someone because they're pro-life doesn't move the needle. Like we haven't seen any progress on this topic for all these decades in spite of all the, all the speeches about it, all the, all the passion about it, but nothing on the ground about actually doing anything to change it. And why? Because again, if you took that away, there's no equal thing to hold up. There's no other shiny red button to hold up that, that you can just turn it on, get a bunch of votes and move on your way. And uh, the article goes into much more detail about the statistics and, and you know, documenting all those things. Um, I talk about it in my book, Jesus Untangled as well, that it's um, it's just something, by the way, that I, I just want Christians to understand it because we act as if we act as if as Christians when it comes to political things that abortion and, and maybe gay rights are the only two things that matter. Two things that Jesus never said anything about. Um, there's all kinds of other things that we, if we're going to be, again, I'm, I'm not political, but if you're going to be, um, there are many other things that you would think would matter more to someone who's a follower of Jesus than than those issues. Or, and again, even if you care about it, and I do, you don't want abortions to be out there, but voting for a particular candidate has not historically ever changed it. Abortions are still legal. It's still happening. So, um, and I talk about in the book, Jesus Untangled, there are other creative ways for us to reduce abortions outside of politics. And by the way, ways of doing so that have historically proven uh, in the past to reduce abortions. Um, and I talk about that in the book. So, Yeah. And man, you're, you're so spot on. I mean, I remember um, even after the election, when people were questioning some of the top evangelical pastors and teachers, they, they were asking them, you know, how in the world could you have, have voted for Donald Trump, given his history um, with um, sexual harassment, given his history with the way he's treated women? Um, you know, some, some of the things he said, done business ethics, those types of things. And the, the response never failed was, well, first of all, he was the lesser of the two evils. You'd hear that between right. him and Hillary. Um, he was the lesser of the two evils. But he was pro-life. Right. And um, and that that's fascinating because, you know, that, that's kind of spot on with the article that you wrote. Keith, thank you so much for coming on um, the Same 7 Podcast, man. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. It's always a pleasure to to read the things that you're you're writing, your books, your blog posts, your your Facebook posts. Man, I've, I've enjoyed so much being a part of that and, and being a, a patron of the um of the heretic happy hour as well and being able to follow you guys and, and the Facebook group. Um, but you're, you're also doing something really special. Um, you, you've got a seminar, an online class, and maybe I'm not describing it the correct way, but back to square one. 
Um, talk a little bit about what you're doing, how people can get plugged into that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for, for that. So, yeah, um, I started this online course. It's a 90-day online course. Um, so it goes through like 13 weeks. And um, essentially, it's called Square One. And essentially, what it's intended to do is to help people who are questioning their faith. Um, we call it deconstruction. So um, what I noticed was there's lots and lots and lots of stuff out there that are helping people to deconstruct their faith. And by that, I mean, just like wrestling with um, what do I believe about the Bible or about hell or about, you know, all these different topics and people sort of questioning their beliefs and reevaluating um, their, their theology and their belief system. Um, so lots and lots about deconstruction, plenty of stuff out there, books, blogs, podcasts, your, yours and mine included. Um, well, what I noticed was there's almost nothing related to reconstruction. So, uh, you know, I think, yes, it's necessary for us to deconstruct and sort of tear down some bad things that are fear-based and uh, toxic and things that don't, aren't bringing us life and aren't really showing us who Jesus really was and that kind of a thing. Yes, deconstruction is really important. But um, we once you've torn all that down, you know, I think we need to help people find a foundation to sort of rebuild their faith. And so what does it look like on the other side of deconstruction? That's what Square One's all about. So uh, it's a 90-day course. We just finished the first round of it um, right before Christmas. Um, starting Monday, January 13th, we're going to kick off the second round, uh, another wave of this with a new group of students. Um, but I'm looking for like 15 to 20 people uh, in the course. And um, again, it's 13 weeks. We just The way it works is we watch... I have a video lecture that is uh, available every Monday. They watch the lecture. There's some homework they need to do during the week. Um, then we get together on the Sunday afternoon. We have a one-hour video Zoom conference call where we just evaluate how are you doing with this? How are you processing this? How can we help you? And again, it goes for 90 days, 13 weeks. And um, the feedback from the first round has been so amazing. I mean, way better than I thought it would even, you know, in my wildest dreams. I uh, couldn't imagine that, that the people have come back and said, wow, Keith, like by the second or third session, I was already feeling like, wow, this is incredible. So um, if people are interested in that, uh, you can find out more information about that. Well, you can contact me on either Facebook, Twitter or whatever. Uh, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. But there's also a website. It's BK2, the number two, SQ and the number one dot com. So that's supposed to stand for back to square one, BK2, SQ1 dot com. Um, and yeah, if anyone is needing help with their deconstruction or needing um, some help moving forwards into reconstruction, uh, this is what it's designed for. And I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Yeah, that, that's incredible, man. And I have um, looked at some of the material and some of the posts that you've made about it. And it's it looks like it would just be an incredible opportunity for somebody going through that experience to to really reconstruct and to to build back up something of substance. And and I think that's extremely important. In fact, um, and you and I didn't even discuss this before, but if, if anybody that's, that's listening to the podcast um, would like to be a part of that, the same seven podcast will offer um, 50% scholarship to you to, um, to go through this course. And so um, you can message Keith on Facebook, let him know and Say, hey, I heard about you on, on um, the Same Seven podcast, and we will take care of 50%, 50% scholarship for you. In fact, Keith, if you've got anybody that needs 50% scholarship, just let us know, and um, we'd, we'd be happy to contribute to that. So, um, yeah. Keith, thank you so much, man, for, for being a part. Happy New Year to you. Um, any final closing thoughts? Uh, of course, you can 
check Keith's. Yeah, if you want a copy of any of Keith's books, you can you can get them at your um, local bookstore, I'm sure. But Amazon's probably going to be your your best bet yeah. for that. And um, Heretic Happy Hour, check out the podcast, become a patron of that. Um, back to square one. You heard the information on that, Keith. Any closing thoughts from you, sir? Um. Yeah, I guess the only thing I'd want to say is um, my heart of hearts, I just want people to see Jesus. I want them to know him and put him first and follow him and for him to be the first thing we think of, like the the main way we think about how do we live our life. You know, I think that's what Jesus was all about. Uh, That's been the most powerful thing, the most life changing thing for me personally, um, to recognize that what it means to be a, a Christian is to be someone who follows Jesus and does that on a daily basis. And um, I just want to say to people, it's possible. It, it is transformative. Um, and uh, yeah, it'll be, it might, it might be challenging at times, but I think in the long run, it's definitely worth it. So I uh, just want to encourage everybody. Again, even if you say, well, Keith, I've been a Christian a long, long time. Yeah, and I was too. But it took me a long time to recognize that being a Christian was about more than saying a prayer so I can go to heaven when I die. That what Jesus expected was that I was going to follow him, and I was going to take up my cross daily, die to myself, um, live in the kingdom of God on a daily basis, and live it in such a way that I would ever wake up every morning and say, okay, Jesus, what are we doing today? Where are we going to go today? How are you going to, what do you want me to do today? And, and really um, pursue Jesus in that way. And I think once you do that, uh, there's nothing like it. It's awesome. So, yeah, that's, that's, I guess that's the last thing I'd like to say. Good deal. Thank you, Keith. Thank you so much for being a part, man. Everything you say is always so challenging and so thought provoking. And I just, I appreciate what you do. So, um, thank you for, for hanging out with me again. And, um, listeners, I know you enjoyed listening to Keith once again on the same seven podcast. Have the happiest of new years and have an incredible 2020. And until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.